Welcome to the Next Level Business Podcast. This is Josh Pathe here. We have Shane Mara and we have Mr. Sheldon in the building. Shane, why don't you introduce our guest for us? I will. I've got Mr. Sheldon Anderson in the house today. I appreciate you being with us today. It is, it's, yes, my, it's my honor, my privilege. I got to tell you, in the banking world, if you're in it for any length of time, you're going to have these really good customers and you can have this top 10 list. And in the banking world, your top 10 list is going to be 80 to 90% of the revenue that you generate for the bank. And the bank's going to love them. You're going to love them. And you can build this bond together if you do a good job on the relationship side. And so this was one of my favorite guys right here. And uh, we met early on. When did you start your I think first we, one? I think that uh, my first tour was in 02. But we probably met somewhere around oh, 07 or... Yeah, so... I started around that time and he was one of the very first customers that I met and he's got a gold and jewelry business. And you want to give your, your name and your intro and whatnot. Yes. Uh, I'm Sheldon Anderson and I own a, a couple gold and silvers in Dallas, Fort Worth. Uh, the first one was Richardson gold and silver over at 75 and Beltline road. And, uh, the second store, uh, was Frisco gold and silver at, Preston and 121, followed by Bedford Gold and Silver, which is where Shane and I met. The yeah, he was right just a couple doors down from the from the bank. Yeah, on the service road of 183. Yep. In Bedford. And uh, four-store Royal Gold and Silver at Royal Lane and I-35 in Dallas. Yeah, so, you know, what's cool is Josh got this young entrepreneur story. I, I didn't necessarily, mine was opposite of that. I, I've shared that story, but you had a young entrepreneur story too. Won't, won't you go into some of that? So, I mean, as a, as a kid, I grew up in the family business. Uh, we had a, an Army-Navy store and we sold jeans. Most of our Army-Navy stuff we got from uh, Army auctions and military bases, Goodwills, um, anywhere we could buy the stuff inexpensive. A lot of times it was in bales and you were buying it by the pound, uh, at army auctions, obviously you would just bid on loads and loads of trywall boxes of miscellaneous gear and equipment and clothing. So those were my, uh, experiences as a youngster, mainly in starting in elementary school through high school. And it was with your dad, right? Family business, family business. And, you know, did, did you see things you're like, did you like that industry, the army Navy business? Like what, what made you gravitate towards uh, gold and silver? So my, my mother's side of the family had jewelry store slash pawn shops in South Florida, down in Fort Lauderdale. And my mother had gone <clears throat> to uh, GIA was a graduate gemologist 
Uh, Your mother was. My mother was. That's cool. So there was some there was some family history in in that industry, kind of more pawn shop industry. And when I would go down as a kid to Florida, I would go to my uncle's pawn shop and help out. So I I would I I think that there was definitely some influence in that area where I saw the gold and this and that. When my parents were first married, they were actually on business, although um, that didn't last very long. And uh, by the time I was three, we were not in the pawn business anymore. So, the, the, but I was too young there to really have much influence. But when, what, what age were you when you got your first store? The one in Richardson? I was 25 years old. 25. And another guy that didn't go to college and uh, tell the backstory on that. Well, I would just say that I always felt that obviously growing up in a family business, we, you know, we were, we basically, when we moved to, to Texas, um, I was in first grade. We had started, we basically started over from scratch. We'd made some money in the pawn business, but my father lost. And we were buying um, jeans and clothing from the Goodwill and selling the, the clothing at a flea market. The way we happened into the Army Navy business was that this little bit of military surplus that we'd get in these bales of clothing seemed to sell pretty good. And that's what actually propelled us into the army surplus business. But before that, it was mainly jeans and denim. And uh, so we started a flea market and we were selling to uh, mostly a Hispanic clientele at Traders Village and Canton and different flea markets in the Dallas, Fort Worth, North Texas area. Yeah, and it's cool. I would say that probably 80% of the guys that were in my top 10 list didn't go to college. And it's it, it, there's definitely a theme here. You know, and, and you know, the school system, you, you see Cuban talk about it and, you know, maybe Gary B and all this stuff. There's a flaw in the school system. And the flaw is that they teach you how to be an employee, right? You, you, are, you are trained to get a good education so you get a good paying job. And they, there's like no classes on being an entrepreneur. And so the entrepreneur thing, it's, it's so much of the time, it's, it's, it's a learned craft from family. Like in your instance, it was both sides of the family that taught you that. And Josh, he just had a natural instinct for it and wanted to, to do it. But uh, there's just a theme there of entrepreneurs not necessarily going to college. And you see Cuban pushing that a lot, Gary Vee pushing that a lot now. And so I think you're going to see a big swing there in my honest opinion of, of college for entrepreneurs in the next today and going out for the next 20 years. Well, I, I think that, um, I mean, personally, I don't have anything against college. And I think that is that, you know, everybody is built differently and you really have to follow your calling and what you feel is your destiny and your direction in life. And I don't know that there's any, specific um, recipe for that, yeah. that you really have to forge forward and, you know, be accountable for whatever decisions you make, good or bad. The biggest thing is, is structure. And a lot of people lack motivation and structure and, and need to be told when to get up and what to do and how to do it. And, and then if they decide that they have some um, 
strong uh, direction as to how they could do it better. And, you know, in business, a lot of times, you know, there's niches and everything. And it's you can take one idea and just sharpen it and be extremely proficient in one small area and be hugely successful. Yeah. So that leads me to uh, Sheldon. I've always thought this and everybody at the bank thought this, too, that he's a unique cat. And he always, it seems like, has the Midas touch. And everything he touches turns to gold, literally. <laughs> You're in the business, but it just seems like everything you touch turns out for the best. And I remember I remember one time when I was at your shop, you, you were, uh, I was talking about why do you enjoy this business so much? And you pulled out a, a bag of diamonds and you had it in the palm of your hand. He goes, right, there's a million dollars of inventory. He goes, I don't have warehouses full of stuff. He goes, my inventory is right here. And it was, it was such a neat thing. But but what's what I love about your business is it's a trading business, right? Sure. Like so much, you're you're buying low and you're selling high. You're not manufacturing anything. Correct. You're buying from the people at a low price and you're selling it at a higher price. And you probably did that in the Army Navy situation. And so uh instead of manufacturing, you develop this trading uh mindset. And I can tell you. He's got so many cool toys and everybody loves tool toys, right? Especially entrepreneurs. We all love toys. And, uh, but you never really lose a bunch of money on your toys because you're, you have that, you take that same mentality with your toys into, uh, into, into those, uh, things that you buy. So you got a, you got a nice big boat and you, you traded on that one and you got some nice cars and you do all that. Talk about the trading mentality and what it takes to, uh, get the right deal and how you go about doing some of that. Well, I, I think a lot of that, my philosophy in that area that you're talking about is that I try to buy value in whatever it is that I buy, especially after you're in the buy sell business, you know, it's the American way to go and pay retail. And people have become complacent to just go, well, I'm going to buy a car for 40000 and I know in three years it's going to be worth twenty. <laughs> but they have become so regimented in the philosophy that that's just... It's like they're almost trained in that. Yeah, it's just like... And they well, bought into that mindset. Yeah, kind of like that's part of what the schooling is. Yeah. <laughs> it's just that, well, you're, you're going to go and, you know, after high school, go to college, get a job, buy a car. The car's going to be worth half what you pay for it. Three years later, you're going to trade that in. And you're going to constantly and you always have a payment, right? Well, you the, the payment is, 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 is expected. Uh, yes. And, um, and obviously we're a huge debt society. So everything is revolved around your credit score being good, you know, and your, it's, it's a, it's a perception. A lot of the schooling is, you know, even people that are in college go to internships when here they are in college and they're going and working for free for somebody because they're a big name company. So they can put that on their resume. Right. So it'll look good for future. Everything's a little bit backwards in my thinking. But um, but buying high and selling low is something that is definitely the American way. <laughs> exact opposite of what you want to do exact opposite of what anybody should do. Yeah. If they're trying to accumulate wealth and with wealth have some freedom. Because if you have a bunch of payments and you owe a bunch of money, 
there's a lot less freedom to do what you want 100%. when you want to do it. Yeah, for sure. Nobody saves. And uh, when you don't save and you accumulate debt, that's the double whammy. And that's why we have so many people that have such a little amount of savings. And, 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 you know, a lot of the, you know, the millionaires next door, they just still don't buy new cars. Correct. The, 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 the philosophy of that they're is just smarter than that. saving their way to a million. Yeah. Yes. And, uh, so I, I know, and I'll just talk about one toy just in general. So I can give the audience a, uh, something to sink their teeth into and what we're talking about. So I remember you buying a Bentley a few years back. You bought a few Bentleys. I've had three. Yeah. And, all the same uh, one and all old. The, the first one I bought was the, was the newest, uh, the, the newest year model. It was the 05. And, and what one, year was that? Because it wasn't 05. It was used when you bought it, right? That was around 08 or. Okay. So you bought a three-year-old Bentley. Nine. It was from a customer. And, and just, just tell me, give me an example. Like what'd you pay for that Bentley at the time? 64,000. 64. And how long did you keep it? The dealership had offered him the same amount of money for it. And it was in his garage with a dead battery. He said, Sheldon, I park place called and offered 64,000 for the car. He goes, you can have for exactly the same price as they offered. Yeah. And what's cool. You know, the dealers always fleece people, right? It's part mm-hmm. of the, a lot of it is they can, but a lot of it is that they have to, right? They have all sure, the overhead and if you can get a dealer's price, you know, you get a good deal on the car. Yeah. It was probably worth 75,000. Yeah. So 80 grand worth 70, you buy it for 65, you keep it. How long? I had it for maybe a year. Had it for a year. And what, how much did you sell it for at the end of the year? I traded in and basically got what I had spent on it back in trade. So that 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 is the mentality of what we're talking about, guys. So he buys a three-year-old Bentley for 65. He, he gets to use it for a year and sells it for the same 65. Correct. And that is the trading mindset. And, and that's something we want you guys to adapt as well, especially on cars, you know. Instead of losing half in three years, which is the average, you can lose half on three years on a new year, on a new car. Buy that thing three years old, four years old, mm-hmm. drive it for a short period of time, buy it as a great deal. There's tons of people out there selling cars at good prices. Yeah. Especially private individuals. So absolutely. That's just one thing to touch on there. But that's the trading mentality. And you do that for pretty much everything in your life, whether it's real estate, whether it's boats, whether it's diamonds, whether it's gold and it works every time, correct? <laughs> every time, maybe a, a little bit, uh, maybe giving me too much credit, but um, He's it, it consistently <laughs> works more than it doesn't. Yeah. Overall, that philosophy on life is going to pay dividends later because if you can buy, if if you could buy a half million dollar boat, let's say, and have the boat for five years and not lose any money. You may have lost some potential earnings from that half million dollars, but you also had the enjoyment of the vessel. Yeah. So, but if you buy something really right and see that it has value and, you know, just as anything, houses, um, boats, real estate, um, there, there are, trends where things can be high in value and low in value. So a lot of times it's recognizing the value and the replacement or what it would cost to build. And a lot of times if you have your ear to the ground and you're seeing a trend like that, let's take housing, for example, right now, 
um, lumber is going up, raw materials are going up. You have all of the inflation that's projected because of all the PPP billion trillions of dollars that have been given away for free. So you can see that the replacement value on houses is going to go higher because the raw material cost is going up, but that price elevation is going to be, um, you know, maybe in one to two years, it's not going to happen overnight. So that's going to raise the value of old houses as well, because the replacement value is going to be so much higher for a new one. So in my business, Rolexes, for example, are, are a great example. A new Rolex two-tone is $10,000. The old two-tone watches, when they were new, they were eh, $4,500. An old two-tone right now is trading for $45,000, $5,000. Still what it cost. Still what it cost 20 years ago. Wow. But that value has been elevated by the cost of the new one. Now, Rolex has also done some great things in marketing and other areas that have really propelled their brand to cement the success that they've had for years to come. But, um, but yes, the, the, there's other elements to that that have made that happen. But still, the, the fact that, it, that the cost has gone up so drastically has... Yeah, that, 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 that's interesting. I was actually having that conversation yesterday. One of the companies that I do some CFO work for, they sell drilling rigs. And these drilling rigs have a long life. Mm -hmm. You know, you have a drilling rig for 30, 40 years if you take good care of it. Sure. And so what that means is, you know, you got a drilling rig that was made 20 years ago. It's still a good rig, but the value, the prices have gone up so much. Sure. Like the drilling rig uh, 20 years ago may have been 250000 Well, now they're 550000 so the 20 year rig is still worth almost what it cost 20 years ago. Sure. And I, I was uh, talking to one of the manufacturers of those yesterday. We were having that same discussion and that's exactly what you're talking about. But being on the, you always have to have a keen eye and be on the look for this stuff and be ahead of the game. And that's, that's what you always are. And I've always enjoyed watching you from afar and trade your way, you know, to, to literally fortunes. And so it's really cool. Well, I think the more educated you are in anything, the the better you can make uh, an informed, logical, smart decision. So whether it's you're buying a, a car, a lot, of, a lot of times when you're buying a used vehicle or something that's used, you have a track record of, of if there's flaws, if there's recalls, you know, you can see past performance. Right. You're getting a free look at the durability, the wear, everything. So and all this information is available. Right? All that information is available. You, you can, anyway. All you got to do is go look, do some research. So, for example, although I have some fancy cars, my daily driver is a 02 Lexus LS430 that has 88,000 miles on it. Now, 18-year-old car. <laughs> yeah, 18-year-old car. Yeah. But that LS430 was way ahead of its time. It the particular one I have was the ultra luxury edition It's air ride suspension and yeah. you know, all the bells and whistles was a $13,000 package. I paid 10,500 for the car with 40,000 miles. How, how long ago was that? I've owned three of those cars as well. So, um, but it was a, a, a vehicle that's made in Japan. It was ahead of its time as far as the infotainment system right. and the touchscreen screen. Um, integration into all that. Yeah. Um, 
So just a probably one of the best V8s ever built. But you look at the reliability on it, it gets, you know, 4.9 out of 5 stars. I mean, so all of these things are, you know, right. they, we now realize that, you know, they're a 300,000 mile car and maintenance wise, you're, um, the, the likelihood of something going wrong uh, that's catastrophic is very low. Yeah. So, all right. I want to jump into one of the things I'm passionate about is business owners marrying real estate with their business. I, all the best business owners that I had did that and they did that well. And it was the evolution of, they bought the first one, you know, everybody has, and it may not even be fear of the first one. It's just the unknown of the first one. Right. But, and there's so much knowledge that you have got to gain. Like you're talking about doing your research. A lot of times on real estate, you can only read so much and you just got to do it. Sure. And so you got to walk through, you know, the, uh, all the different phases of it, you know, from the inspection process and doing all your due diligence and the financing and, you know, the title company, all that stuff. And, but once they did the first one and they ran the numbers behind the scenes, knowing that their business could cash flow the building, or if it was a multi-tenant situation, they knew that the additional tenants would help cover the cost of the note. And so uh, once they got past the first one though, they saw not necessarily easy, but they saw that it was doable and they saw the potential of it. And almost all of them, they evolved into multiple pieces of commercial real estate from that point on. And you have done the same. And uh, talk a little bit about how you got the first one, because we all know how we go from two to 10, right? Your second building to your 20th building. We all know that. The big question is, how'd you get that first one and the mentality when you were going into making that first decision? Because that's the one that so many people have a hard time getting over and getting over that fear, reluctance, you know, trying to figure out how to come up with capital. So around the time that you met me, I was um, I was separating from a brother that I was in business with, and we were both 50-50, which on a side note, I don't recommend 50-50. <laughs> So the first two stores we'd opened in Richardson and Frisco, they were both in strip centers, belonged to a large real estate tenant. So you had this pretty little lease that you had to guarantee. I wouldn't say pretty. Uh, <laughs> leases are designed to either fleece you, run you out of business, or both over a period of time. And most large real estate firms are ruthless. Can you say that one more time? Cause I, I want people to hear that phrase that you said about what leases are designed to do. Say that one more time. Well, landlords want into your business. And if you're hugely successful, they have no mercy and they want part of your money. And they feel that they're, they, they feel as though since they're providing you the location that they're entitled to it. So there's different scams that they have come up with over the years. One would be a percentage of rent. So in addition to whatever you pay on your lease, they want bonus money and they'll sign you up early on. In fact, the first one we signed had uh, some tenant um, money that, that went to the landlord and they'll say, Oh, well, if you do over 1.5 million in sales and I want, you know, 3% or it, it's this, it's this uh, percentage rent that's over and above. That's just a bonus gravy on the top. 
you're wet behind the ears. They're going to throw this in the contract it's like mafia style. <laughs> they get, but yeah, the, the, the funny thing is, is that they get rights to all of your financials in the lease because they want to make sure that you're not cheating them out of their 3% or whatever it is they've agreed to. But yeah, typically you see a lot of that on the, on the, uh, the food side, the food industry has a lot of that where they get a piece, they get an override of, of Oh, and alcohol sales. sales. I, I know, um, yeah, absolutely. Some of those big bars that they were make, I mean, I know of one where they were making 40 or 50,000 a month, just, just in the percentage rent that they had signed into the original lease, because it was actually at Cowboys Arlington and Cowboys Arlington was hugely successful for a long time. And that percentage rent, but that was a really easy one to track because all the alcohol sales are documented with the state. Yeah. So so that's a that's a super easy one. So you had that in yours. The so my, yeah, the first one we, we did, we had that one in there. And um we, you know, this uh so I after opening the second one, and when you go into redo a store, sometimes they'll give you a little bit of help, twenty thousand or something for some finished out allowances, yeah. especially if it's a white box or you know, new construction. But they'll they'll give you, you know, some you know, something. Normally it's it's coming, you're paying it back in the rent, you know, somehow, but ideally I, I thought this is just throwing money away. Not only the money you put in, which is a lot of times in excess of a hundred or 200,000 doing a finish out for a jewelry store. Like I was doing with marble floors and showcases that are built uh, to a specific layout. Um, everything's custom. Uh, so signage, all of these things. So after the second store, I was, I had come to the realization that if I were to open any more stores, there is no way I was going to do it unless there was an option to purchase or we were buying the, the building. So the Bedford store, when it came about, the only way I was interested in is if I could own it. So at the time I didn't have, I was going through a divorce with my brother uh, in business and I didn't have the cash to pay for the building, but I did have the wherewithal to have an option to purchase. And it was a five-year option to purchase. And that was, that was huge. They were willing to sell the building at the time, but um, I didn't have the money. So I did put that in there and that was huge negotiating uh, tool at the time that paid huge dividends later. And and that is a great thing right there for uh, all the entrepreneurs out there who are on the fence about buying their own real estate, or maybe they don't feel like they have the capital at the time to do it or the bank won't do it or whatever the reasoning, get an option to buy. Sure. Absolutely. And give yourself some time on it. Like you had five years, what year did you actually buy it? So what happened was they were widening 183 the state ended up paying for the building for free. All right, let's listen to this because this is this is a cool thing. And, and our bank was on that same 183 and we got a ton of money as well. So yeah. the the road that we were on, the state came in and wanted to widen it. And when they do that, the only way they can widen it is they take real estate land, essentially from all the commercial business owners or real estate owners on that road. And so that's what they did. 
And they gave the bank a whole bunch of money. Now we negotiated, we got lawyers obviously, and because we didn't like the first valuation that came to us. So we got lawyers, so we got a higher price. Same thing happened with you, but you got so much money out of that. It essentially paid for the building. I paid 412,000, I believe for the building and the state paid me 650. So <laughs> the building was 6,000 square foot and it was narrow, 40 foot wide and a couple hundred foot long and or 150 foot long, I believe. We cut the building in half and refaced it. So we basically paid the whole note off and refaced the building. So the property ended up being free. The, the, half the size, but we didn't need 6,000 square foot. In fact, the back was just all warehouse space anyway. So we ended up with a 3,000 square foot building on 183 there, paid for by the state yeah. after the taking of the land. So, and we, we at the bank got the privilege to finance that for you. And this is why we say Sheldon has the Midas touch <laughs> because he buys a building for 412, puts some money in it to get it exactly the way he wants it. The state just commandeers a portion of the land. He has to cut his building by, did you say half? half? They cut the building in half, but they give you 600000 for all of that. So at the end of the day, he still has the building. It's half the size, which is still all you needed, right? Sure. And has it for absolutely free. And the building was still worth how much at the end of that? I would imagine the building's probably still worth about the same amount of money. Maybe a little bit less because the square footage is smaller. But Yeah, so the minus touch, but that's why we say you have a minus touch. That's, that's one example right there. And... Uh, it just, you, you have other scenarios. So you, 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 what was the second piece of real estate you bought? So the second piece of real estate was very similar to the first. Uh, Dallas Gold and Silver is a publicly traded company here in Dallas, Fort Worth. They tried to sue me for the name Gold and Silver. The industry standard name, which means buy, sell. So there was nothing legally that was wrong with the name. So after that was thrown out of court, I wanted a building across the street from Dallas Gold and Silver's main location in Dallas. I went over there and there happened to be this cute little standalone building across the street, across I-35. And I went in and talked to the lady there. It was a travel agency and told her I was interested in buying the building and asked if they'd sell it. She gave me her husband's name and number, and he had another business, a furniture business down the street. Went down there and talked to him. A week later, I bought the building. And it was similar to the first one. They obviously didn't even have the thing for sale and weren't really wanting to sell. But because I was going to use it, I could afford to pay top dollar for the building. And... In order to in order to, to make the deal happen, I also leased that building. It was an option to purchase. It was a five-year option to purchase. But in order for me to go in, it was an ugly little building and put in several hundred thousand dollars to bring it up to speed to which you you did that even when you didn't own it. I, I didn't, but I would only do that if I had an option to purchase. Yeah, so that's an important point. So when you do renovation on a building as a business owner, you spend a lot of money outfitting these buildings to get them exactly the way you want them. And uh, in your case, you weren't going to let go of that money without the option. Yeah, because otherwise you're just beautifying somebody else's property, which is going to give them opportunity to raise your rent, 
<laughs> and and then you don't own it. So there's, it's not a wise decision. Yeah. And I want to, I want to point out a couple of things there too. So you already have one location and you were going to make this building look identical to the first, right? Correct. So there's a lot of savings there, you know, because you already know everything that you spent on the first one, you're ready to put it all back in on the second one. So you, you know, when you have, mul- when you go into the multiple location business, uh, there's some economies of scale there. There's some synergies there that carry over to the next one. And so you're able to do that. And uh, it just, what gave you the confidence though on the second one to buy a second building and to open essentially, you were, you were really going right after your competition, right? Putting a building right by theirs. What gave you that confidence to know that that was going to work? Well, in business, when you have larger businesses, there is, there are good things and bad things that come from that. Uh, Dow School and Silverwood spend somewhere between a half million to a million dollars a year in advertising. If you're spending that kind of money, you are not capable of paying for things and selling them at as low a price as as I could. My my business doesn't take as much to operate. As theirs. As theirs. And it's kind of like the Burger King philosophy. <clears throat> if McDonald's has done all the research and, and, and demographic studies and builds a restaurant in one corner, you really don't have to do a whole lot to know that the other <laughs> corner is probably a good corner too. So not only, not only could I compete with them, but I could write off some residual advertising that they're doing for the area. So that was a, also a huge benefit. And, and you touched on that lawsuit. Your names were similar, right? Gold and Silver. But so what was their name again? Dallas Gold and Silver. And what was your name? Richardson, Frisco, Bedford, and Royal Gold and Silver. Okay. So there, there's a lot of, like, <clears throat> they would run those ads. There's probably a lot of confusion there when the people hear it. They hear Gold and Silver, and then they just, you know, they're probably driving by and they see your store instead of theirs. And you pick up on a lot of their advertising, probably just from that too, on the name confusion. Sure. I think in, in advertising, in the jewelry business, a lot of times people don't know the difference. Our first store that was in Richardson, we didn't realize at the time the um, the gravity of the location that we had chosen until after we were moving in. The jewelry exchange spent a million dollars in advertising Dallas Fort Worth, like they do in every city. They have a store for one location. Million a year? Million a year. Wow. And that was 20 years ago. And they, if you would talk to the brothers, it was Golden West Diamond Corporation, the the jewelry exchange, they would say they were in the, adver- the advertising business, not the jewelry business, because they were spending, they had 15 stores. They were spending $15 million a year in advertising. They just happened to be selling jewelry. So we opened up one block north of them on the southbound service road. Their name was the Jewelry Exchange, but all the ads they had been running for a decade said the Jewelry Exchange of Richardson. The Jewelry Exchange of Richardson. <laughs> so everybody knew the Jewelry Exchange of Richardson. Well, our name was Richardson Gold and Silver Exchange. People just saw Richardson, which they had heard, which actually wasn't written in their name. We were also sued by them. Coincidentally, but it was thrown out. <laughs> um, and they saw the exchange 
so the Richardson was not imprinted, printed anywhere in their ad or in their name on paper. That was just said in the commercial. But our name was Richardson Gold and Silver Exchange. So, and if you just say the jewelry exchange or Richardson Gold and Silver Exchange, totally separate. But the point is, is we checkmated them on the location. We were one block north of them on the southbound service road. The only way that you could get to them was by passing us. <laughs> Coincidentally, they owned the building there on 75. We opened in November. They moved by the end. Of, they started moving before Christmas that year to Coit and Arapahoe. Wow. It was that hard of, they knew that their time was numbered. Wow. So I think in, in any business, as you, as you get larger, um, Shane and I were talking about this a little earlier before we came on the air, that in business, once you have been successful and made it, that there's, there's still challenges and things that you have to do in order to move forward and stay active and Because people will knock you off. Yes, because all they of a sudden spot. you become the bigger fish. Yeah, you're the king of the hill, and they want and, some of that. And you have people that have been with you for a while. The salaries are higher. The um, your overhead is more. Everybody has insurance now. You, you know, you have a manager and this and that, and you aren't as nimble and flexible as you once were. And instead of being the person that is um, that can be aggressive on on prices and buying, all of a sudden you've you've become exactly the target that you were after when you started. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And then, so after you get that, you get the second store, you, you, uh, you did the option on that one and then you bought it again, right? Yes. 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 What what year did you buy it in in the option? So you had another five-year option there. What year did you buy that one? Before before we go to that, I just want to say that, that what that dynamic we were just talking about plays out over and over. If you, if you look at Kmart with Walmart, Amazon with putting a wall. Right. So these Kmart was huge. Take, you know, if they get complacent and think, okay, we're the top of the game. So we can't take us out. I mean, so those things play out in, in, in that dynamic you can see play out in a lot of different businesses. Yeah. And uh, that's such a good point, Josh, you probably even see that a little bit on the photo booth side. Right, yeah. you probably see a lot more players now, and and they're I know they're targeting you because you've done such a good job of uh, helping create that space. And uh, you, you got anything to add on that one? Yeah, actually, it's funny because yesterday um, we there's a lot of people selling uh, my product now from the house and getting it. You know, China is so accessible now. So when I see that happening. I just approach them and tell them, hey, just sell my products. That's headache for you. You can still make your margins. I'm still making a little margin, you know. So if you can't beat them, join them. Yeah, I love that mentality, man, because you're turning competitors into people that really are uh, working for you. Right. And it's easier for them. I mean, they got a finished product that they don't have to worry about logistics and they can still make um, about what they were going to make doing it by themselves. Yeah. So that's a good word for business owners listening. So not everybody's your enemy, you know, potentially somehow 
you can turn these guys into uh, where if there's something they can't offer, you can, and you guys help each other. I did that in the banking world. I would, I'd see these other lenders out there and you naturally think that they're enemies of yours. But, uh, you know, if they were with Chase, there's a lot of loans that Chase couldn't do. And, you know, I, I'd, I'd approach them at events or whatever and say, hey, I'll, all the small deals that uh, you can't do, I'd love to have those and vice versa on the big deals that are, let's say, too big for us. I'd love to give them back to you, even though we would always figure out a way to do the big deals. Sure. They, they at least love the story of that. And and sure enough, you know, you get a phone call from them randomly, you know, every so often yeah, on some deals that they couldn't get done because they have this box. And so don't always see your competitors as competitors. You know, it, it's it's good to keep them close and it's good to figure out a way where you can work together. Oh, absolutely. Even when Dallas Cole and Silver was across the street, at first they were upset that I came in, but I found that it's way, it was way better to have them as an ally than an enemy. So if somebody had a fake something, necklace, I would call over there and say, hey, just letting you know, heads up, this guy had a fake this or that. And we would work together. Now, I would still spank him, but <laughs> I would say, why don't you go over there and get a price and come over and I'll just make you a hundred bucks for driving over. <laughs> I, I would definitely use them to my advantage. Yeah. But, uh, you know, you don't have to, it, it doesn't have to be a contentious, uh, you know, and, you know, every once in a while uh, they legit would beat me out or overbid on something in a scenario like that. We'll let them have it. And I think you even put me in touch with them because I remember having a meeting with uh, one of the guys that was a real estate buyer or something for, okay. for one of those groups. Sure. Yeah. Yes. I think they come and looked at your building. Yeah. Maybe that's how it was. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, I couldn't remember. They were but, trying to creep up on me. They yeah, ended up buying the little building across the street from me. <laughs> they returned the favor. <laughs> yeah, we're paying this fool back. We've had nothing else. Kicking our butts. Yeah. Yep. True story. Yeah, so having two locations, obviously, is a challenge, right? So what, what was the secret for you being able to manage as an owner dual locations when just in theory they're both going to take time away from you? One of my mentors that I early on in the business would sell things to, his father owned a, a business and it's across from the store in Bedford. His father had passed away. He owned 25%. And with his inheritance, I let him buy into the Bedford location. That's when we opened it. That's what kind of brought that about. At that time, they weren't sure what was going to happen to that store. It was in a strip center across the street. Coincidentally, Dallas Gold and Silver ended up buying out his mother, brother, sister, and him. But they collectively, the three of them with 75%, were able to strong arm him into selling, although he didn't want to because that was his livelihood. So he invested in my company and... I would say that that is a huge reason for our success. It's hard to do our business in multiple locations without having somebody that's knowledgeable, trustworthy. So in this case, this guy owns a portion. So one of the stores that is run by a guy who actually bought in. But he owns everything that he owns, uh, 10% of the company. So the real estate and the business. Absolutely. And, and, and we talk... We talk about this too, like, uh, you know, when you're dealing with small businesses. You got to have that guy in there day to day. That's the grinder. He's turning the lights on. He's turning the lights off. 
He knows everything about all the expenses. He's managing the day-to-day books. He's managing the bank accounts. And in your case, you have that with him and you trust him and he's a partial owner. And I love that strategy where you give a guy a small ownership in a building in this, in, in the business. In this case, he bought in. Yeah. So, uh, but I also like the, the mindset of if you have one location, let a guy buy in a small percentage because that sure. guy is going to, uh, he's essentially going to get after it on your behalf. Well, I think a lot of the very successful franchises, uh, a lot of the successful franchises operate similar to that, whether it's Canes or Chick-fil-A or, you know, the, the franchisee is kind of a partner in the business. So, What do you think about that, JP? Letting some of your employees have ownership. Um, yeah, we've tried that in the past. They just, they don't know how to quantify it, you know, because they're just looking to then, how much am I getting on my next paycheck, you know? And for them to understand, like, the future and the vision, uh, it's hard for them to grasp that. It sounds cool, you know, but uh, that's just my experience when I tried to do it. Yeah, it's got to be people that you trust. And uh, let's say people that have been there a while, those are the ones that that you really start to, you know, they're valuable to the company. You know, if it's new, maybe they got to test themselves. But the ones that have been there a long period of time, you know, we did that on the restaurant side. The, uh, The lead cook was so valuable. He was irreplaceable. And so we gave him 1% ownership, right? At the end of the day, if we ever sold it, 1% wasn't really going to matter much to us. And he was only going to get overrides on any profits. Mm-hmm. And uh, when you talk about that small of a percentage, it really didn't move the needle. But sure. for them, it's a game changer. For them, they invest everything they've got into the company because they're an owner now, right? So they're even staying later. They're taking more pride in what they do because they know that, it, it's it's a part of who they were. So we did that on the restaurant side. Did you approach him about that? or, or he, I did. I did. We didn't want him to leave. And uh, we're like, hey, we want to offer this to you. And he was, he was overcome by that. He loved it. He's like, nobody's ever done that for me. And so uh, sometimes that can work. Yeah. No, you no. made a good point. You can't, you can't give away too much because at the end, you don't have anything yourself. Yeah. Well, I, I think that what you were saying is uh, is correct. A lot of people lack um, a vision and the the wherewithal to take something to the next level. Sometimes that may be because they don't feel that they can. But I I do believe part of what an entrepreneur is, that wise, is they they have a vision and they believe that something can be that doesn't exist. Um, And when you have a vision and a determination, you you can only be your biggest advocate or your worst enemy. But if if you are not going to accept failure as an option and you're striving forward with with a vision to, to be successful, I believe that 
that's a that's a huge factor that you cannot discount. When you hire somebody, they're looking at, oh, you're giving me percentage. Well, what, how much is that worth tomorrow in my paycheck? They don't have a, a vision to say, oh, you're going to give me 5%. Well, let me, what can I do to grow this business by double? And, you know, and, and, and then I'm going to add value and I can come to you and say, you know what? I, I appreciate that 5%. It really motivated me to, to go out and do, but the value I'm bringing to the company, I think now is worth 10%. And, and I know what you can do, and but we can do it together. You, and, and the synergy of, of working together and having a vision to go forward is much different. But if they approached it from a from an add value and what can I do to grow it, then of course, at that point, they do have value, much, more value than, than, than they may realize. And, and they could renegotiate a better deal. Um, I was I was talking to um, a friend of mine earlier this week, and he ended up owning uh, a lot of pizza franchises. But he started out in the hospitality business at a hotel. Once he grasped the concept of a franchisee and what they could, what they could make. And his focus was how to become a franchisee. A manager, he said, was making 51,000 in 1989. He said, and he was doing not even that good a job. And he said, he saw room where he could improve and do a better job. And, and, but he wanted more. So he, his focus went to the top yeah it cream i always say cream rises to the top but always yes so i think a lot of it is that you know just having the um the the wherewithal to to realize that there's that with hard work especially when you're starting a business it takes a lot of work you have to put your nose to the grindstone you know you you're and you have to fill a lot of shoes you 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 have to be the the main buyer the main seller the sweeper the the carpenter when i was building the different stores I was the trim carpenter. I was the general contractor. You know, if there was something I couldn't do, obviously I'd bring the people in, but I laid floor, did trim, you know, found the location, negotiated the deal. You can't afford to have somebody to fill all those different spots that in, in, in a perfect world, well, who's going to negotiate that? Well, you better put in the negotiating shoes. <laughs> and then when the carpentry comes in, you know, we, we have a diamond that's out there, a 183 on the pole. I spent a couple months with, two buddies building a, a three-dimensional diamond that's up on the 40-foot pole. Yeah, so, that was quite an undertaking. It is truly a 40-foot pole with a giant diamond on top. 10-foot diameter and, yeah, six-foot tall. Yeah, but, so, and you did it yourself. It's not like yeah. you paid somebody 50000 to come and set this up. So no. it was kind of your brainchild. Right. Yeah. No. So I think that, yes, there, there are a lot of shoes that have to be filled. But if, if somebody... Um, resist being you know, narrow-minded and, and, and looking at just the here and now. It has a vision for the future with, with, uh, with a hope of getting there. A lot of times, my first store was financed by a venture capitalist who was 30 years old when I was 25. I went to Selma 4 Carat Diamond and he wanted to be in the jewelry business. I met him on a Monday, by that Friday, 
he had he had vowed a million dollar investment on a 50-50 deal with me putting up zero in cash. I was a very fortunate to go and sell somebody a diamond and, and find a, an investor. But had I not had a vision and, and already had found a, a location, I was trying to rent it, but the, the landlord wanted half a million in cash in the bank. Bedford location. The Richardson location. So, but had I not had already been headed in a direction, I would not have had the same presentation to this gentleman I was just going to show a four care diamond to. Yeah. So the Midas touch again. There's another example, JP, right there. Sells a guy four carat diamond. He goes, Hey, how about I give you a million dollars and we we start a business together? He's like, Okay, sure. <laughs> That's what happened. <laughs> yeah. All right. So final words, final thoughts for the uh, investors and business owners out there. Word of advice. Putting you on the spot. <laughs> My recommendation to, to anyone like graduating or, you know, going into business or, or going into college would be to go into whatever field of study or work that you enjoy. Find something that you enjoy doing in life and become the best that you can be at it. Find a niche or a little caveat um, that you can excel in or that you could see where there's some improvement that could, that, or it, some improvement could be used. I would say focus less on the money. If you do whatever you do extremely well and make a niche for yourself, the money will follow. But if you have the money and you're doing something that you utterly dis disgust you, the likelihood of having any enjoyment in life is going to be slim. Well said. Well, thank you for being with us today. It is, uh, it is my pleasure. I'm so glad you did it. And as you can tell, he's a great guy to go have a beer with. We used to have these fight parties, JP, on his boat. So I would invite the best, the top 10 list out to Sheldon's boat, 55-footer. I mean, it was sweet that you bought a great deal. Still probably worth what you paid for it. That's worth double what I paid. <laughs> worth double what he paid. Another Midas Touch story. Uh, but interesting guy. Great stories. Great insight. Great wisdom. Thank you again for being with us today. A pleasure. Thanks for having me. All right, guys. Well, thanks for tuning in. Make sure to check us out, nlmastermind.com. Uh, rate and review the podcast. We'll see you guys next week. Take care. See you next time, guys.